Hello and welcome to NewsHour from the BBC World Service coming to you live from London. I'm Paul Henley. Our top story this hour, the US president sets in motion plans to impose tariffs on Chinese goods. Also today, the remote Norwegian community of 2,000 people with 151 cases of sex abuse. I was pretty much uh, covering my face with, with a mask. So nobody knew. You keep it to yourself and fight your own war. Do you if ever I, go back there now? I, I don't want to go back there, no, ever. Today we'll also hear from an English 106-year-old who loves her car and still drives it. go to garden centres, I go to the coast, I go to um, the grocery store, I go to yoga. I, I, it's just part of me. That's coming up a bit later. First, the US Vice President, Mike Pence, called today the day the era of economic surrender by the United States ended. President Trump has taken the first steps towards imposing tariffs on billions of dollars worth of Chinese goods. The move increases the prospect of a trade war between the two the world's two biggest economies. Speaking at a signing ceremony at the White House, Mr Trump said action was needed to rebalance an international trade system that was very unfair to the United States. He said America's trade relationship with China had to be put right. I view them as a friend. I have tremendous respect for President Xi. We have a great relationship. They're helping us a lot in North Korea. And that's China. But we have a trade deficit, depending on the way you calculate, of $504 billion. Now, some people would say it's really $375 billion. Many different ways of looking at it, but any way you look at it, it is the largest deficit of any country in the history of our world. It's out of control. Mr Trump didn't go into detail on the sanctions he planned, but he did say he believed in reciprocal arrangements. Our correspondent in Washington is Jane O'Brien. I asked her what more we knew. What was very clear from uh, his speech earlier is that this isn't just about trade. This is about the perceived threat to America's security, because what uh, Congress are worried about and what seems to be the biggest impetus for all this is concerns over China's uh, theft of intellectual property. That That's what the US is worried about, including cyber theft, uh, investing in US companies and then gaining proprietary rights to uh, technology and for companies into giving up their trade secrets as a price to work in China. Um, And what uh, Congress and what the president and his advisers say is that um, this this poses a threat um, because 44 million people work in technology. America leads the world. It's the backbone of the future of the US economy. And they're worried that by gaining this technological advantage, China is going to gain the upper hand over the US. Who do you think his intended audience was for the tone of his intervention, the talk of America being taken advantage of? Well, this was definitely to a domestic audience and particularly to his base. As he said, this was the reason, one of the biggest reasons he was elected, because for for the 
last two years, he's been pushing this message that America is the underdog. America is being treated unfairly, not just by China, but also by its allies and by the World Trade Organization. And he is is telling people that uh, he's, that America is going to be pushed no longer and he's going to fight back. This is something, in his words, that should have been done many, many years ago. Um, so it was definitely aimed at, a, at an American audience and politically it will probably go down with them pretty well. And it wasn't unexpected? No, it wasn't. He's been talking about this for some time. It was a campaign pledge. Um, he's frequently described China as an economic enemy. He's invoked China as, as America's number one boogeyman. Um, I think what, what might be surprising is the timing of this, given that he needs China to further uh, his upcoming talks, if they happen, with um, the leader of North Korea. China is, is a big factor in all that. And if uh, Mr. Trump is going to continue with his efforts to denuclearize North Korea, he's going to need China's help. Whether China feels that it wants to give its help after this, of course, is the open question. The BBC's Jane O'Brien. Wendy Cutler in our Washington studio is the vice president of the Asia Society Policy Institute and former deputy US trade representative during the Obama presidency. What did she make of this president's announcement today? We all expected um, an announcement along the lines of of, um, the president's statement today. Um, It's a very strong response to a real um, problem we have with China, and that is that they are pursuing unfair trade practices in the technology and intellectual property regime area. The president has announced really a three-pronged approach. One, imposed tariffs against certain Chinese imports – And he identified the aerospace, information technology, and machinery sectors. Second, he mentioned that we will proceed with a WTO case against China with respect to their discriminatory licensing procedures. And third, he said Secretary Mnuchin will soon unveil a reciprocal investment restriction regime restricting Chinese investment in the United States. Let me introduce Dr. Wee Jie, who is head of China Foresight at London School of Economics' foreign policy think tank. Let me ask you, doctor, do you think there are lots of people in China thinking we can't believe our country has got away with this trade relationship with America for so long? Well, I think obviously China is somehow the new government. The new government just been resumed on Tuesday. Somehow expect this coming. But what they have taken is they have taken some preventative measures. So Xi Jinping has actually sent his envoy, Mr. Liu He, to visit Washington, D.C. and try to reassure Mr. Trump, uh, please do not let's go ahead. But obviously, this has not gone down very well between Beijing and Washington, D.C. So this kind of expected. Um, But then on the other hand, China also wonder... Is for the first time after 18 years ago, it was the United States helped China to join the World Trade Organization. And why suddenly Americans has decided to go against its own principle in the very beginning? This talk about intellectual property theft and industrial espionage, what exactly does President Trump mean? Well, obviously, I think he's uh, 
pointing the direction of China 2025 um, innovation in um, an initiative, and that's what China Chinese government has been advocating for many years. And this initiative has not gone down very well, both in the United States as well as within Europe. What initiative? Let's get a bit more specific. So the initiative is try to uh, try to acquire the avant-garde, cutting-edge technologies in sectors such as high-speed railway, civil nuclear, biotechnology. Try so, to acquire that them as in including trying to steal them? Uh, I wouldn't use the word of steal. I'd rather say it's almost like you acquire a certain technology and then you adapt it. So you try to somehow moderate that technology. And then that could be construed as being a theft for intellectual property. And that has not gone down very well within the United States among major United States companies. How do you think China will react to what the president said today? Uh I would consider China will play both carrots and sticks. So as for carrots, and China would somehow open up its own financial market to some degree and allow the U.S. financial houses um, investing further in China. So this would somehow offer the interest of the 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 Wall Street. But then on the other hand, there's also sticks, and the sticks measure would be. Perhaps during the next presidential visits or next day visit, and China will stop buying Boeing aircraft, aircrafts, and and jets, and this is actually take huge amount of local employment in the United States, and I think as U.S. consumer and U.S. workers, which will be hated the hardest. Dr. Wee Jia, for the moment, thank you very much. Let's return to Wendy Cutler, who is former. A deputy U.S. Trade Representative was during the Obama presidency. Can I ask you, Wendy Cutler, what you think should have been announced today? Well, two things I, I think were very important, which I didn't hear today. One was that these actions seem to be very unilateral. The U.S. is raising tariffs. Um, the U.S. is going to impose a restrictive investment regime. I would have preferred to see an announcement that um, acknowledged the importance of working with our other trading partners, who also share similar concerns vis-a-vis China, work together and approach China with a united front on, once again, these serious unfair trade practices. Second, I think whatever action is taken, it's very important that the U.S. adheres to international trading rules. And by unilaterally raising tariffs under Section 301, um, we are pursuing what I view to be a very blatant WTO violation. Um, And I think this will give China the upper hand to portray themselves as the the protectors of the global trading system and the U.S. as being protectionist um, and trying to destroy the WTO system. President Trump said the WTO, the World Trade Organization, was tilted against America. Did you have that impression when you were serving under President Obama? of biased against America. We've had a lot of successes in the WTO, both through negotiations and dispute settlement. Is it a perfect system? No. Have there been cases in dispute settlement that have gone against the United States that shouldn't have? Yes, of course. But that said, it is a system of global trading rules, um, and it's important that the United States and other countries follow these rules. Um, And when they don't, then take appropriate measures in response. Were the injustices against America on the part of China so burning that doing nothing was not an option today? Um, I think so. Um, These these issues um, have been around for a number of years and through various administrations. Um, The United States has tried to address these practices, has made some um, inroads. Um, But given China's 2025 plan 
to produce globally dominant companies in a series of advanced technology sectors, um, I think it's critical that the United States try and address what is a very serious and growing concern. Wendy Cutler, many thanks. Uh, A last quick word uh, from Dr. Wee Jie from the London School of Economics. You believe, don't you, that this is bad for Chinese business and American business today? Yes, uh, indeed, absolutely. Is is bad for China, but bad for China more at the society level because at the end of the day, what you United States try to put tariff on is mostly impact upon uh, employment, and that's one thing the Chinese Communist Party concerned the most. Whereas for the United States, I think the most worrying uh, pressure group will come from the big businesses, especially company like Boeing. Wee Jie of the London School of Economics and Wendy Cutler, who served under President Obama. In the past few minutes, the Chinese embassy in Washington issued a statement denouncing President Trump's decision to impose tariffs. In a statement, the embassy said that if a trade war were initiated by the US, China would fight to the end to defend its own legitimate interests with all necessary measures. We urge the U.S. to cease and desist, the statement said, warning that by endangering China-U.S. trade relations, Washington would eventually end up hurting itself. You're listening to the BBC World Service. This is NewsHour. Coming up later in the programme, in post-Mugabe Zimbabwe, young voters are feeling energised ahead of elections. I think with the recent transition of leadership, um, I feel like maybe I have a say more. I'm feeling very excited. The headlines, President Trump has initiated punitive measures against China in retaliation for what he says is the theft of intellectual property and an out-of-control trade deficit. The lead lawyer representing Mr Trump in the investigation into alleged Russian meddling in the 2016 election has resigned. The former South Korean president, Lee Myung-bak, has been arrested on charges including corruption and Zimbabwe has signed a $4.5 billion mining deal that could create 15,000 jobs. This is Paul Henley with NewsHour, live from the BBC. Syrian rebels and their families have begun leaving eastern Ghouta as part of the first evacuation deal in the shrinking opposition enclave outside the capital, Damascus. The agreement, announced on Wednesday and brokered by Russia, could empty one of three rebel-held pockets in the region and mark a major advance in the government's efforts to secure the whole capital region. The BBC's Martin Patience has been following all this closely. I asked him for the latest. Well, around 30 buses uh, carrying hundreds of rebel fighters and their families have started leaving a town in that opposition stronghold close to the Syrian capital. They were fighters from the group Ahrar al-Sham and they agreed to lay down their arms in return from safe passage to the north of the country. Now, these buses were shown on 
Syrian uh, state TV leaving the town of Harasta, and we presume that it's heading to the northwestern province of Idlib. Now, previously, that's where rebels, after cutting deals with the Syrian government, that's where they have been transported to. This deal was brokered by the Russians, so the Russians are overseeing the implementation uh, of, of this agreement. Are the rebels safe? Is there international non-Russian supervision to the convoy? We saw that uh, the, the Syrian Red Crescent were there. I think more significant, we have seen this in the past. So, you know, from the Russians' point of view, from the Syrian regime's point of view, they want it to happen. And the reason they want to happen is that these rebels have left one of the key towns in eastern Ghouta. And what that means is the Syrian government uh, can simply walk in without a fight. So it's in their interests as well. And what about the civilians? You say they can walk in without a fight. Is there literally no resistance left? That's the idea. Well, there's three main areas that have now been surrounded. This was one pocket. There are still rebels inside that town. There are still civilians. Uh, we understand that civilians will be allowed to stay behind if they, if they do, in fact, want to. But what this doesn't mean is that the violence in East Ergota is over because there's still two main rebel groups and they are continuing the fight there. But I think what this does is it fits a pattern that we see, we've seen elsewhere in Syria to end government uh, campaigns offensive. So what they do is they besiege the area, they bombard the area. We've seen that for more than a month in eastern Gota, and then they cut deals. And the thinking is that they're negotiating with the two other main rebel groups in eastern Gota, and perhaps a similar deal may be on the table. Significantly, those groups, say, are vowing to fight on, but they are coming under more and more pressure. Will there be more buses coming to get more people out of this part of Ghouta? In terms of Harasta, this time the suggestion is that more buses will go in tomorrow and more fighters and their families will be evacuated. But as with everything in Syria, we'll just have to wait and see whether or not that actually happens. In terms of the rest of eastern Ghouta, the offensive continues. We do know that negotiations are underway and there are some suggestions that perhaps similar deals may be cut. The BBC's Martin Patience. Last November, Norwegian police published a report about sexual abuse in a remote municipality north of the Arctic Circle. It made for shocking reading. Tusfjord has a population of just 2,000. And after investigating for more than a year, the police identified 151 cases of sexual abuse. The earliest dated from the 1950s, the most recent from 2017. Around two-thirds of the victims and the alleged abusers were of indigenous Sami origin. Linda Presley reports now from Tusfjord. I was pretty much uh, covering my face with, with a mask. So nobody knew. You keep it to yourself and fight your own war. Do you if ever I, go back there now? I, I don't want to go back there, no. Ever. I'll call this 20-something Avin. He's one of 11 people of Sami heritage who first spoke out about child sex abuse in Tisfjord in a national newspaper in 2016. Only then did the police begin to investigate. 
Many of the alleged perpetrators identified couldn't be prosecuted because they committed crimes too long ago. Avin's one of the few whose abuser did go to court. But those years when he kept silent took their toll. I was um, hospitalised uh, 17 times in a year. You were hospitalised 17 times? Yeah, because of uh, paraly- uh, what is called paralysis. Paralysis? Yeah, and something like um, the shakes, you know. And that was psychological? Yeah, I think so. Many years of my life uh, I've gone to thinking about those things that happened. You're still angry about what happened? Yeah, of course, of course. I know that um, I have uh, the power in my hands because I have the power to forgive, you know. And have you forgiven? Not yet, no. We hear a lot about forgiveness in Tisfjord. Well, this is the most cars we've seen in one place since we've been in Tisfjord. I guess there are 40 or 50 in the car park here, people still arriving. It's twilight, just about five o'clock, and the service of the Lestadian church is about to begin. Now, the Lestadian congregation, it's an offshoot of the Lutheran church. And in the police report, what it said was that a lot of people who have been connected with the sexual abuse case here in Tisfjord had a relationship with the church. Hi, hello. hello. I'm from the BBC in London. No, thanks. People are polite, but they don't want to talk. The Lestadians are a conservative, mostly Sami sect. Heidi Anderson was vicar in the mainstream Norwegian church until she retired. She's critical of how, until recently, the Lestadians protected sex abusers. The offenders, uh, they had forgiveness from their leaders. They just came to their leaders and, and, and told them, I have done a sexual sin, you know? And the leaders, they forgive them. But they didn't go to the victims to ask about forgiveness. You see? But also, the, the victims might not want to see their abuser. Mm, yes, but I think that if the abuser go to the victims or in a way uh, give a message to the abuser that they regret this, you know, so I think the, the victim will start feeling better. But has that happened at all? Yes. It has? Yes. Some victims tell me that uh, offender has come to them and apologised what has happened. And that was very, very good for, for, for them. But only uh, two or three. That's Heidi's husband, Dr Fred Anderson. He treated dozens of survivors of sexual abuse in the weeks and months after the story broke in 2016 and continues to do so. The police report identified 92 alleged perpetrators, mostly men, but a handful of women too. Some have died. And Norway's statute of limitations prevented many of those who survived from being prosecuted, so they still live in this close-knit community. Managing them is the job of the police. Every one of them, we have talked to them and tell them what we know about them. Officer Aslak Finvik took the lead in the Tisfjord investigation. We tell them don't take contact with the victims, because if you do that, it could be new cases so those men, they know that you're watching them, basically? Yes, they know. And when you went to talk to them, did any, any of them admit their guilt? They did. They realised that they had done something wrong. They are also a victim, maybe. So there are some perpetrators that you know are also victims in yes. this? Yes, yes, I know that. Life in Tisfjord is complex, but people are optimistic about the future. They've lived nearly two years under the shadow of a story that gripped Norway. Now they want to move on. 
The BBC's Linda Presley reporting from the north of Norway. Hello, I'm Carrie Gracie, and until recently, I was the BBC's China editor. Well, I've got something really exciting to tell you. I'm now presenting the Real Story podcast. It's also made by the BBC World Service. We take a single topic in and around the news and we examine it in depth, one hour, one topic every week. The idea is to give important issues just that bit more space to breathe. So if you're looking for a slower look at our fast-changing world, search for The Real Story wherever you find your podcasts. Coming up next, a major tech company calls time for now on Facebook advertising. First, a park in the centre of Brussels has become a meeting place for migrants and for volunteers who are welcoming them into their homes. Hundreds of migrants from Africa and from the Middle East gather there every night and through social media, local people are mobilising themselves to offer a roof over the heads of those fleeing their homelands. Severine Diodoné reports. I'm here in Maximilian Park, in the heart of Brussels. This is where hundreds of migrants come every night. Many come here hoping to find a shelter for the night. Belgian men and women are also here. We call them les hébergeurs, or hosts. People who open their doors and welcome one or more migrants into their family homes. Every evening, the volunteers house around 300 people. An organization called Brussels Refugees started the scheme in August 2015. Many harrowing stories have been told by migrants such as Miko. I've been to so many countries and I've never seen as good as Belgian people, just how friendly they are to, to have a house. Some hosters are as young as 12, such as this boy who came with his mom, Marie. I am lending my bedroom. I'm happy to help people and I feel good about it. Medicassou is the co-founder of the citizen platform Brussels Refugees. In the course of six months, their group has grown to 38,000 members. We went from 200 host families to up to 4,000 host families. You have drivers, food distribution centers across Belgium, citizens who collect goods and distribute them. Today, you can see that in Belgium, nothing is implemented apart from a repressive political system. You see aggressiveness and some violence from the authorities with some arrests, confinements, deportation and nothing else. Public opinion in Belgium is divided as to whether the government should be doing more to help migrants, many of whom don't want to settle here. Theo Franken is the Secretary of State for Asylum and Migration. Well, we're doing a lot of police work, um, actions on the field, um, and uh, we are also doing a lot of prevention campaigns. We're also, uh, two times a week, we go and talk to the migrants to convince them to ask asylum, or, uh, to convince them to, uh, to do the things uh, regularly, like the, the law says. Back at Maximilian Park, it's late, and you can feel the evening chill. Things have quietened down. Most of the migrants who were here have got a bed for the night. Shelter and security provided by Belgian citizen volunteers. They see the initiative as a counterbalance to anti-refugee sentiment in the country. But many will be back again tomorrow and the night after. Their long-term future, anything but secure. Severine Dieudonné in Brussels there. 
You're listening to NewsHour from the BBC. I'm Paul Henley. As we reported on the programme yesterday, Mark Zuckerberg has pledged to do more to protect Facebook users' data in the future. But today there's been increasing pressure from politicians in Europe and the US for him to explain in person what happened when the political consultancy firm Cambridge Analytica exploited millions of users' data. Facebook's share price has stabilised after a big fall when the news broke, but there could be other financial challenges ahead. Today, Mozilla, a non-profit foundation which makes the second most popular browser on the internet, Firefox, said it would not advertise on Facebook until there was stronger action on how it used customer data. Mitchell Baker is the founder and executive chairwoman of Mozilla. The general setting of what's happening there, what's happening with user information is getting more and more murky. You know, we were confused and it's very difficult to figure out what's actually happening. We realized that individual consumers can't figure that out. And so it seemed a very appropriate time for us to step up and represent as many users as we can in saying it's time for Facebook to certainly be transparent, for us to know what's happening with their data, for them to give us effective choices. And we think that as a default, Facebook shouldn't be, by default, sending all that information out to the third-party app ecosystem. Yeah, you're very sensitive to public relations as well, and you're you're an advertising company. I mean, this looks good for you to be saying this, doesn't it? <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> we'll see. I, uh, you know, I guess given your question, maybe this will sound self-serving, but but we've got ourselves set up as a with a nonprofit, you know, at the heart of things, and as a parent to try and take away, you know, the impetus to be always concerned about profit and always making more money for your shareholders. You know, we, we don't do that. We do really try to be an advocate, and we have made a choice for that, and we'll see. Sometimes you do something and the consequences are not what you expected. And it's easy to do something that you think people like, well, they'll all like it and it'll be great. And you find out after the fact, oh, man, it didn't work out that way at all. And so we are trying to do the things that we think consumers would want to have a voice in. What protections would you like to see for users? We'd like to see the data is collected is what you think is collected. We'd like to see that the data doesn't automatically go to tons of third parties because you and I will never know who those are or whether we would trust them or whether we should trust them. So all the games and apps and such on Facebook, there's a lot of data moving out of Facebook to those developers. And so we'd like to see that stopped. And we'd like to see the ability for consumers to say, this is what I want to be much easier. Now, Facebook has done work and there are a lot of privacy controls, but they are also very complex. And so making that actually easier and aimed at what consumers might want. Will you stop advertising permanently if Facebook don't make changes? I suspect that Facebook will be eager to make some changes. But if they don't, yeah, we'll have to keep reevaluating. Can I ask you if you regret not investigating data privacy issues before this? Mozilla has spoken about data and privacy all of our existence. We have talked about data. We have talked about Facebook and its use of data for a decade. And so we have been doing the work that we can do for quite some time. Some people have talked about a Wild West attitude to data in Silicon Valley. Do you think it's the end of those days? I don't know if it's the end. I would say it's an awakening. 
And yes, there has been a Wild West attitude towards data. So I think it's a moment of reckoning. I don't know if it will be the one that changes everything, because it does take a real act of will to be careful and think about different ways to use data. So we also have pilots in trying to figure out, can you get good personalized experiences for people without sucking up their data? And so data can be handled differently. It's a long-term process to do that. And it's unfortunate that it takes these crises like this to shift the balance of where we're heading. But hopefully we can make good use of a crisis and start down a better path industry-wide on data. That was Mitchell Baker, who's the founder and executive chairwoman of Mozilla. Zimbabwe will hold elections in either late July or in August. Previous polls under the government of President Robert Mugabe were widely discredited as being unfair and rigged to favour the ruling ZANU-PF party. But the country's new leader, Emerson Manangagwa, is promising a transparent vote this time. Electoral monitoring groups say there's been an upswing in young people registering to vote, in part due to social media campaigns. The BBC's Shingai Nyoka reports on the growing influence of the country's youth in election matters. Good evening to all my new Facebook friends. The picture is grainy and his delivery slow and cautious. At 75 years of age, Zimbabwe's new president, Emerson Manangagwa, is playing catch-up with social media. I encourage you all to message me your thoughts. It's part of an image overhaul to modernize what some see as an aging ZANU-PF party leadership. Elections are just months away, but the ruling ZANU-PF Party Youth League have already started campaigning with catchy hashtags like ED has my vote, a reference to Mr. Mnangagwa. District Harare. Gugumpofu, a high school student, has just turned 18. She's at this voter registration center. One of the voters that Emerson Mnangagwa will try to woo. I think with the recent transition of leadership, um, I feel like maybe I have a say more. I'm feeling very excited. I feel like perhaps if it would have been maybe 2008 I, and I turned 18, I don't think I'd have been quite excited to vote, but I feel like now my my vote can make a change and say something. Age plays a very big part in being a president. I think as an older person, you may be able to understand a situation better and look at it from a different perspective. Most of the people registering to vote at this centre in central Harare are the youth. Statistics show that their numbers on the electoral roll has grown by about 15%. It's an important development for a group that have often been accused of being politically disengaged. For the first time, millennials will have the real power to influence the outcome of the elections, and the youth are already setting the agenda in the tone of the campaigns. Some members of the main opposition movement for democratic change want a younger leader to take the party to elections. Nelson Chamisa has just turned 40. He says, we can't have a country led by men that are too old to use a plough when the youth are there. 
His campaign is being supported by a group of former university students under the hashtag generational consensus. Mobam Lambo is an unemployed university graduate and he's leading the campaign. The basic idea behind our movement, these are our own social struggles as young people, our own lived realities, questions of unemployment, questions of economic marginalization, questions of political exclusion in political processes and key decision-making bodies. The question of unemployment, the question of sustaining and leading a happy life, pursuing a happy life, has been suffocated by the past generation. Zimbabwe is shuttling towards one of its most highly anticipated elections. Millennials are hoping that for the first time, their say regarding their destiny will carry the day. That report from Harare was by the BBC Shingai Nyoka. The number of over 70s holding a driving licence in the UK has exceeded 5 million for the first time. 265 of them are over 100 years old. Once people reach 70, they have to declare whether or not they're fit to drive every three years, but they don't have to take a new driving test or undergo a medical examination. Matthew Price met 106-year-old Eileen Ash in Norwich in the east of England. Her car was in the garage being fixed when they talked, but he started by asking her what she drove. A Mini, and it's 13 years old, and it's a little beauty. It does everything I want it to do. What do you use it for? Go to garden centres, I go to the coast, I go to um, the grocery store, I go to yoga. It's just part of me. I've grown up with a car. I couldn't manage without a car. Do, do, at a particular age, do you have to take a test again? Is there any any legal requirement to I do no so? I have no idea. <laughs> I t- took my test in 1937. <laughs> I had a, um, a provisional licence in 1936, and I passed my test. A lot of people have said, you didn't even take a test. But I took a test in London and passed very different driving in London in 1937 yes. to driving in Norwich today, I guess. Absolutely, yes, yes. They don't, they don't use their indicators in Norwich. You never know where anyone's going. But no, there weren't all the cars on the road that are now. Is that the main change in terms of driving or do you notice a change in the way that people drive as well? Well, no, there are good drivers and bad drivers, all ages. But some of the youngsters, I think should have something on their cars to say they just passed their test. And you, you'd be aware of them and, and take precautions. So since 1937, no-one's required you to take a test or to no, check your proficiency no. as a driver. No. So it's really up to you to regulate whether you think you are safe on the roads. Well, if you can't see the cars on the road or the <laughs> pedestrians on the pavement, it's time to take a test. What about your contemporaries? Are there any of, of people of a similar age to yourself who are still driving and you think, oh, oh blimey, I wouldn't get in the car with them? Oh, well, a, a lot of my friends, I'm afraid, are up in heaven and I don't know whether they'll drive up there or what they're doing up there. But none of my friends uh, at my age are driving, of, you know, over 100. What do you make of this notion that at a certain age drivers should be required to hand over their licence and to stop driving? No, I I don't agree with that at all. I think if you 
uh, know, you'll know when you can't drive, and then that's the time to stop. If I feel um, I'm a nuisance or a danger on the road, I would stop immediately. But at the moment, I feel fine. Since 1937, how many accidents have you, have you had? None. None at all? Well, I did hit my lawnmower as I was reversing into my garage. Someone put it there, I didn't see it there. But um, that, that, that was my only accident. I think that's pretty good going well, in I all think, those years I think of driving. So too, so I think I can go on driving. <laughs> 106 year old Eileen Ash, who passed her driving test in 1937. She's also, by the way, a former England cricketer who played seven test matches for England between 1937 and 1949. She is the oldest living international cricketer and quite an advert, surely for people taking up cricket now. You're listening to the BBC World Service. This is NewsHour. A reminder of our top story this hour. President Trump has started punitive measures against China in retaliation for what he says is the theft of intellectual property and an out-of-control trade deficit. Wendy Cutler, a former deputy U.S. trade representative during the Obama presidency, told NewsHour that those issues did have to be addressed. Given China's 2025 plan to produce globally dominant companies in a series of advanced technology sectors, um, I think it's critical that the United States try and address what is a very serious and growing concern. The other news headlines this hour, the lead lawyer representing Mr Trump in the investigation into alleged Russian interference in the 2016 election has resigned. And Zimbabwe has signed a $4.5 billion mining deal that could create 15,000 jobs. This is Paul Henley with NewsHour from the BBC World Service. As many as 20 Russian media outlets are boycotting the lower house of the Russian parliament, the Duma. They say official investigations into claims an MP has sexually harassed journalists have failed to uncover the truth. Three women have claimed they were harassed by the MP Leonid Slutsky, who is head of the parliament's Foreign Affairs Committee. Mr Slutsky denies the accusations. He has, in recent weeks, apologised to women to whom he's wittingly or unwittingly caused distress, but without mentioning anyone by name. The head of the Duma Ethics Committee has said that it found no violation of behavioural norms by Mr Slutsky and suggested the accusations, which were made sometime after the alleged incidents, were a provocation, timed to coincide with the presidential election campaign. Well, the first person to go public with her claims was Ekaterina Kodrikatze, who's deputy editor of the TV channel RTVI. I talked to her shortly before we came on air and I asked her about her experience. So it happened years ago, seven years ago, to be precise. I was working for a Georgian television station and I came to Russia to cover Russian political processes. So I was trying to record the representatives of uh, opposition and of the government. So I called Mr. Slutsky to arrange an interview. He said that he was not against the interview, but he wanted to talk to me before off record and invited me to his office to discuss the interview. And I came to him without cameraman, without camera, and he invited me immediately in his office, closed the door and pushed me to the wall and... um, without any preliminary discussions or any questions. 
he just tried to kiss me and touch me. So I pushed him back and I was astonished and shocked and I ran away. And I was trying to forget about this episode in my life during these years, but it was not easy to forget about that. I remember that always. And when I was discussing or trying to arrange any interviews with the politicians in Russia, I was always trying to defend myself, bringing my cameraman with me always, every single time. Did you say something to anyone at the time? I did tell it to my friends in Tbilisi, actually, because... You know, I was not even thinking about going public with this because there were different times then. And honestly, I was worried about myself. I understood that if I go back to Russia, because I am a citizen of Russian Federation, he could find me. And, you know, revenge is a very common thing in Russia. And I was scared and I was ashamed. I really, honestly, I thought that maybe I was wrong somewhere and that was my fault you know and only after years i understood that there was zero of my fault i did nothing what's made uh, you go to, public now i could not imagine that this situation with me was was not just me that it was happening regularly with other women as well so when my colleagues from tv rain anonymously declared that Mr. Slutsky was trying to harass them i discussed the situation with my boss in moscow with the editor-in-chief of rtv alexey pivovarov and we together we decided that it was very important to say it out loud to go public to open my face and to look look him in the eye after that number of women in Russia understood that they can be brave enough. They can talk publicly. They can say the truth publicly. And that lots of people, thousands of people would be on their side. What was I the response? You, what was I the response from the authorities? Any? Oh, my God, that was terrible. Because Mr. Slutsky, he was um, trying not to comment for the one or two days. But after that, he said he, he linked my statement with my nationality, my ethnicity. And he uh, he mentioned that I was Georgian. So that's why I would go against him because I was Georgian. And he tried to joke that he would wait for the similar statements from Ukrainians or Americans because, you know, the political discussions and political problems, uh, tensions between the countries. And then the, the worst statement was from the speaker of uh, Russian Duma, Mr. Volodin, who said that if someone feels uncomfortable and threatened in the State Duma of Russian Federation, then if this person can stop working for the State Duma. Just go away from Duma if you're scared. There was an official inquiry, wasn't there, into Mr. Slutsky's conduct? Yes. What happened? There was actually a discussion. Uh, I would not say that it was an inquiry. It was a discussion in an ethics committee in Duma. It happened just, you know, terrible things happened there because, you know, the, my colleagues from BBC and uh, TV Rain, they went to this committee, commission, ethics commission, and instead of being heard and instead of asking the questions, the members of the committee, they tried to accuse the girls, tried to show that they were provoking Mr. Slutsky or they were lying about Mr. Slutsky. And the main idea was that we actually, me and these two girls, Daria and Farida, that our main goal was political that we were trying to arrange the political campaign against the member of Russian Duma. Mr. Slutsky has denied your claims and those of the two other women, hasn't he? Oh, yes, he did. But he has made an apology. 
Oh, no, it was not an apology. It was 8th of March. It's International Women's Day when uh, he said that he was celebrating this beautiful day with, with others and so on and so forth. And he said, congratulations to all the women around me. Oh, and by the way, if someone uh, is sad about the things I've did ever, then I'm so sorry about that. So it's, it's not an apology. He said, by the way. I'm sorry if someone feels bad about my behavior. This is not an attitude that someone would wait from the member of the parliament. Is it true that Russia has no specific laws against sexual harassment? It's true. Yes, absolutely. Because the situation that is going on now in Russia and the boycott that the Russian media have declared, Russian media outlets and Russian media newspapers and radio stations and TV channels, they declared the boycott to the Russian Duma. This is happening for the first time ever in Russia. And this is the real precedent, a very important one, because with this decision of the commission, ethics commission of Russian Duma, it did not end. The story is only beginning. And I'm sure that it's not going to end with this embarrassment that we felt yesterday, but it's going to end with the real changes in Russia because the world is different now. So what exactly do you want the boycott to achieve? I would be happy if it ends with Mr. Slutsky to leave the State Duma of Russian Federation, just to make sure that other people, other representatives of the Russian state would never, never, ever touch or harass other women, the journalists or whoever who work with them or who sometimes meet with them. But I understand that it's not going to happen soon. I understand that he's going to work in a state Duma because someone needs him to be there because they need to defend their system because they still think that they are in Soviet period when everything is possible, when, you know, strong men can do anything they want and that nothing happens to them. That was Ekaterina Kodrykatse, who's with the Russian-language TV station RTVI. And we tried to get through to Mr Slutsky, who denies her accusations of sexual harassment, but we weren't able to get a response. And that brings to an end this edition of NewsHour. Thank you for listening. Bye-bye for now. Hour has been a download from the BBC. To discover more and our terms of use, visit bbc.com/podcasts.